0: What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place, for free. Which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, the lesser of the podcast platforms, Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what have I been doing? Last night, I got together with my friend... Uh, who I've known since college when I worked at the dry cleaners, and he's a very nice guy, and he's always been very shy, and uh, but we'd always stayed friends, and then after the whole college thing, we wound up running into each other again in the, uh, later on, and and we tried to stay in touch, but every time we got together, it was always awkward, a lot of silence, no one's really talking. Uh, I tried to talk, but he really wasn't responding very much. And so I started to think, I don't think this guy likes me. And I think he's just tolerating me. But he kept wanting to get together. And um, so finally one night when we we're sitting around at uh, at the green mill, I said, what's the deal? It seems like you don't like hanging out, but you keep wanting to hang out. And he goes, I'm just really shy. I can't help it. And I said, all right. And then he said, what if we just drank a lot and uh, got rides home? And uh, I said, eh, all right, if that's what you want to do. And he had the time of his life. Uh, he was talking to women. Uh, he was, we were making friends, you know, as well as you can make friends when you're drunk. And there's strangers that are also drunk. Um, not quality friendships. Uh, as he said, I had a great time. We need to do this multiple times a year. And I said, I can't do this that often. That's a lot of drinking. And, uh, you know felt horrible the next day and so once sometimes twice a year we get together and uh, we do that so last night was one of those nights and uh, luckily I didn't have to drink a lot um, and uh, we, he came over to my place we hung out we chatted uh, drank beers went down to a nearby restaurant bar thing Uh, but that's not a place you sit and get really like drunk at or anything. So we came back here and we just hung out and drank beers and stuff. And it was a fairly good time. I enjoyed myself and he seemed to enjoy himself too. Uh, he loved the idea of a podcast. I explained to him, I don't have anyone. No one's listening to my podcast. It's just basically one friend and that's kind of it. He said, I don't care. Let's, uh, let's talk about a book we both read. And I said, all right. And he said, let's not talk about it now. Let's save it for the podcast. So we do, we get down in the, uh, in the basement, get the mic set up, start recording. And he, uh, he, we found out we've not read any of the same books. We have nothing to talk about. I only, not that I'm trying to be, uh, bragging or whatever, but I've only mostly read like classics, old books, uh, any of the new books I read, like newer ones, I kind of just get annoyed with. Uh, And I don't know why. That's just me being fussy. He only reads newer books. And so um, the only book we both have read was The Infinite Jest, which I started and just had a hard time finishing. He finished it. So, of course, he had to give me a hard time about actually finishing The Infinite Jest. So that was a failure. I think we are still going to try to. So he decided he wanted to. We're going to both read a book and then we're going to talk like a little book club. And we're going to call ourselves The Book Boys. Uh, he, he picked it out. He wants to read the golden compass. And I said, all right, so now we're, we're reading the golden compass. I'm about four chapters in and, um, you know, it's young adult fiction. I am not impressed. Uh, who knows? Maybe he'll violently argue me on that part. Maybe the next episode might be the one where you get to hear the book boys argue over young adult fiction. Besides that, my dad came over and he uh, gave me a new clock that uh, you wind up and it goes bong. And he also um, gave me a, a bust. So the busts has been a running joke where he's got a bunch of them in the house, like 10 or something. They're everywhere. And I always say, when you die, I want to get some of these busts. And he's like, I'm going to tell you straight up, you're never going to get any of these busts. And uh, so we always go back and forth all the time. But then lately, he's been giving me busts. And I don't know where they get them from, but they're getting busts from somewhere. So over the last couple of years, I've received two busts. And now he just showed up with a third. And it's a, a kind of giggling woman that might possibly have angel wings. I can't tell. Uh, but in either case, uh, it's, it's awesome. Um, I worked on my lawn today The backyard has no grass at all It's just Creeping Charlie, I found out, is what it's called Everywhere And, um, yeah, I basically can't be out there And so, my brother-in-law has his brother Who actually owns a lawn care service thing And so he came out, it was really nice He came out and he sprayed all of the Creeping Charlie Which is my entire lawn and he sprayed it with these chemicals, and he did the entire thing. He even did the front yard. And he warned me, uh, you're just going to have a dirt lot now, because uh, you have no grass, and you're going to have to do something about this. So I think he's going to come back for another round after that. i got to get out there and rake dirt and get it all churned up and ready, and just like I'm a farmer, and I'm going to start putting down grass seeds. So by you know, the end of the summer, maybe I'll have some grass, but by next year I should hopefully have a beautifully manicured lawn, uh, that I'll be able to frolic in and play badminton. Um, and tonight I'm going to go over to my brother-in-laws and my sisters and I'm going to, right after this podcast, and I am going to watch the Deadwood show with them, which is a show I've missed so much. Uh, all these years. And so, uh, yeah, I want to hurry this crap up and, uh, I want to get, get reading. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading. So, um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it, but I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate... Here for you, with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where do we leave off in the last chapter? Uh, Chapter 12, The Bishop. We learn that the bishop got sent to a hospital because society deemed him insane for his crazy ideas. Uh, Avis found him and uh made a, and followed him even though he wanted nothing to do with her because basically Avis and Ernest had ruined his life, even though he feels like he's doing more. Um it's thanks to Ernest that he uh he wound up in the loony bin. And um but nope, Avis won't give up. Can't stop ruining people's lives. So she follows him to an old woman's house and learns about old people's employment. Uh and then when the bishop goes back to Avis and Ernest's uh, new abode uh, he says I've got a ton of money here's my big idea I'm gonna in this in this system that we're in I'm going to try and help people to the best of my ability uh, and so you know I'm involved with like charities and I have this money stored away that no one's gonna be able to get at and of course Ernest says sucks to charities uh, we shouldn't have charities if the worker, was given everything that he produced, and uh, and also you should give my you should give the socialists that money. You should give it to me, and uh, so that was kind of a jerk move. Um, so not uh, still not loving Ernest very much, uh, and the bishop winds up getting locked up again uh, for the rest of his life. So now on to chapter thirteen: the general strike. Of course, Ernest was elected to Congress in the great socialist landslide that took place in the fall of 1912. I knew he was going to get the job. And he's probably going to get assassinated because Ernest already called it and he's never wrong. One great factor that helped to swell the socialist vote was the destruction of Hearst. This, the plutocracy, found an easy task. It cost Hearst $18 million a year to run his various papers. And this sum and more he got back from the middle class and... Payment for advertising. The source of his financial strength lay wholly in the middle class. The trust did not advertise. To destroy Hearst, all that was necessary was to take away from him his advertising. The whole middle class had not yet been exterminated. The sturdy skeleton of it remained, but it was without power. The small manufacturers and small businessmen who still survived were at the complete mercy of the plutocracy. They had no economic or political souls of their own. When the fiat of the plutocracy went forth, they withdrew their advertisements from the Hearst papers. Hearst made a galleon fight. He brought his papers out at a loss of a million and a half each month. He continued to publish the advertisement for which he no longer received pay. Again, the fiat of the plutocracy went forth, and the small businessmen and manufacturers swamped him with a flood of notices that he must discontinue running their old advertisements. Hearst uh, persisted injunctions were served on him. Still, he persisted. He received six months' imprisonment for contempt of court in disobeying the injunctions. While he was bankrupted by countless damage suits, he had no chance. The plutocracy had passed sentence on him. The courts were in the hands of the plutocracy to carry the sentence out, and with Hearst. ...crashed also to destruction the Democratic Party that he had so recently captured. With the destruction of Hearst and the Democratic Party, there were only two paths for his following to take. One was into the Socialist Party. The other was into the Republican Party. Then it was that we Socialists reaped the fruit of Hearst's uh, pseudo-socialistic preaching... For the great majority of his followers came over to us. The expropriation of the farmers that took place at this time would have uh, welled our vote had it not been for the brief and futile rise of the Grange Party. Grange Party. I'm never going to figure that one out. Ernest and the socialist leaders fought fiercely to capture the farmers. But uh, the destruction of the socialist press and publishing houses constituted too great a handicap. While the mouth-to-mouth propaganda had not yet been perfected, so it was that politicians like Mr. Calvin, who were themselves farmers long since expropriated, captured the farmers and threw their political strength away in a vain campaign. "'The poor farmers,' Ernest once laughed savagely. "'The trusts have them both coming and going.' And that really was the situation." The seven great trusts working together had pooled their enormous surpluses and made a farm trust. The railroads controlling rates, and the bankers and the stock exchange gamesters controlling prices had long since bled the farmers into indebtedness. The bankers, and all the trusts for that matter, had likewise long since loaned colossal amounts of money to the farmers. The farmers were in a net. All that remained to be done was the drawing in of the net. This the farm trust proceeded to do. The hard times of 1912 had already caused a frightful slump in the farm markets. Prices who were now deliberately pressed down to bankruptcy, while the railroads, with extortionate rates, broke the back of the farmer camel. Thus. The farmers were compelled to borrow more and more while they were prevented from paying back old loans. Okay, so what's happening here is it's not Ernest giving a big speech anymore. Now it's just the narrator, which I guess is Avis, more or less giving a big speech of just boring, boring, boring stuff. This is a lot of detail that doesn't actually drive the story. It's like we've gone back eight chapters. Then ensued the great foreclosing of mortgages that enforced collection of notes. The farmers simply surrendered the land to the Farm Trust. There was nothing else for them to do, and having surrendered the land, the farmers next went to work for the Farm Trust, becoming managers and superintendents, foremen and common laborers. They worked for wages. They became villains, in short, serfs bound to the soil by a living wage. They could not leave their masters, for their masters composed the plutocracy. They could not go to the cities, for there, also, the plutocracy was in control. They had but one alternative, to leave the soil and become vagrants, in brief, to starve. And even there they were frustrated, for stringent vagrancy laws were passed and rigidly enforced. Of course, here and there farmers and even whole communities of farmers escaped expropriation by virtue of exceptional conditions but they were merely strays and did not count they were gathered in anyway during the following year thus it was that in the fall of 1912 the socialist leaders with the exception of Ernest decided that the end of capitalism had come what are the hard times and consequent vast army of the unemployed What of the destruction of the farmers and the middle class? And what of the decisive defeat administered all along the line to the labor unions? The socialists were really justified in believing that the end of capitalism had come in and themselves throwing down the gauntlet to the plutocracy. Alas, how we underestimated the strength of the enemy! Everywhere the socialists proclaimed their... Coming victory at the ballot box While in unmistakable terms They stated the situation The plutocracy Accepted the challenge It was the plutocracy Weighing and balancing That defeated us by dividing our strength It was the plutocracy Through its secret agents That raised the cry that socialism Was sacrilegious and atheistic It was the plutocracy That whipped the churches, and especially the Catholic Church, into line and robbed us of a portion of the labor vote. And it was the plutocracy, through its secret agents, of course, that encouraged the grange party and even spread it into the cities and into the ranks of the dying middle class. Nevertheless, the socialist landslide occurred. But instead of a sweeping victory with chief executive officers, majorities, and all legislative bodies. We found ourselves in the minority, and it's true, we we elected fifty congressmen, but they took their seats in the spring of 1913. They found themselves without power of any sort. Yet they were more fortunate than the Grangers, who captured a dozen state governments and who, in the spring, were not permitted to take possession of the captured offices. The incumbents refused to retire, and the courts were in the hands of the oligarchy. But this is too far in advance of events. I have yet to tell of the stirring times of the winter of 1912. The hard times at home had caused an immense decrease in consumption. Labor, out of work, had no wages with which to buy. The result was that the plutocracy found a greater surplus than ever on its hands. This surplus it was compelled to dispose of abroad, and what of its colossal plans, it needed money. Because of its strenuous efforts to depose of the surplus in the world market, the plutocracy clashed with Germany. Economic clashes were usually succeeded by wars, and this particular clash was no exception. The great German warlord prepared, and so did the United States prepare the war cloud hovered dark and ominous. The stage was set for a world catastrophe, for in all the world were hard times, labor troubles, perishing middle classes, armies of unemployed clashes, of economic interests in the world market, and mutterings and rumblings of the socialist revolution. The oligarchy wanted the war with Germany, and it wanted the war for a dozen reasons, uh, In the juggling of events such a war would cause, in the reshuffling of the international cards and the making of new treaties and alliances, the oligarchy had much to gain. And furthermore, the war would consume many national surpluses, reduce the armies of unemployed and menace all countries, and give the oligarchy a breathing space in which to perfect its plans and carry them out. Such a war would virtually put the oligarchy in possession of the world market. Also, such a war would create a large standing army that need never be disbanded. While in the minds of the people would be substituted the issue America versus Germany, in one place of socialism versus oligarchy. And here is where we take a little break, so that I can tell you about a new book. That sounds fun—a new book from Penguin Random House called *Eat Like a Fish: My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer* by Bren Smith. You can get it in hardcover, or ebook, or even audio, which would be a lot of fun. Uh, let's let's learn a little bit about *Eat Like a Fish*. It's part memoir, and part manifesto. In Eat Like a Fish, Brent Smith, a former commercial fisherman turned restorative ocean farmer, shares a bold new vision for the future of food. The vision is seaweed. Through tales that span from his childhood in Newfoundland to his early years on the high seas aboard commercial fishing trawlers uh, from uh, pioneering new forms of ocean farming to surfing the frontiers of the food movement Smith introduces the world of sea-based agriculture and advocates getting ocean vegetables into American plates there are thousands of edible varieties in the sea exclamation point here he shows how we can transform our food system (laughs) while enjoying delicious, nutritious, locally grown food, and how restorative ocean farming has the potential to create millions of new jobs and protect our planet in the face of climate change, rising populations, and and finite food sources. Also included are recipes hmm, from acclaimed chefs, uh, Brooke Hadley and David Santos. Written with the humor and swagger of a fisherman telling a late night tale this is a monumental work of deeply personal food policy that will profoundly change the way we think about what we eat I'm just gonna give you a couple examples of praise this one's from Mark Bittman author of how to cook everything Bren Smith's book on seaweed farming is something I have been looking forward to for years. This one from Forbes. A perfect balance between personal storytelling and blueprint for a new way to harvest our seas that can create meaningful jobs while simultaneously combating climate change. So, if you're looking for a book, a nice little recipe book, including uh, Fisherman Tales... Which everyone would love to have If you want A foodie fisherman In your living room Rocking back and forth in your rocking chair Smoking his pipe and telling you of His adventures on the sea And of cooking This is the book for you Eat Like a Fish by Bren Smith And now back to the story Where do we leave off? America versus Germany in the place of Socialism versus Oligarchy. And truly the war would have been done, all these things had it not been for the Socialists. A secret meeting of the Western leaders was held in our four tiny rooms in Pell Street. Here was first considered the stand the Socialists were to take, and it was not the first time we had put our foot down upon the war, but it was the first time we had done so in the United States. After our secret meeting, we got in touch with a national organization, and soon our code cables were passing back and forth across the Atlantic, and between us uh, and the International Bureau. The German socialists were ready to act with us, which isn't helpful because they're in Germany. There were over five million of them, many of them in the standing army, and in addition, They were on friendly terms with labor unions in both countries. The socialists came out in bold declaration against the war and threatened the general strike. And in the meantime, they made preparation for the general strike. Furthermore, the revolutionary parties in all countries gave public utterance to the socialist principle of international peace that must be preserved at all hazards, even to the extent of revolt and revolution at home. The General Strike was the one great victory we American Socialists won. On the 4th of December, the American minister was withdrawn from the German capital. That night a German fleet made a dash on Honolulu, sinking three American cruisers and a revenue cutter and bombarding the city. Next day both Germany and the United States declared war and within an hour the Socialists called the General Strike in both countries. For the first time, the German warlord faced the men of his empire who made his empire go. Without them, he could not run his empire. The novelty of the situation lay in that the revolt was passive. They did not fight. They did nothing. And by doing nothing, they tied their warlords' hands. He would have asked for nothing better than an opportunity to loose his war dogs on rebellious proletariat, but this was denied him. He could not loose his war dogs. Neither could he mobilize his army to go forth to war, nor could he punish his recalcitrant subjects. Not a wheel moved in this empire. Not a train ran. Not a telegraphic message went over the wires. For the telegraphers and railroad men had ceased work along with the rest of the population... And it was in Germany, so it was in the United States. At last, organized labor had learned its lesson, beaten decisively on its own chosen field. It had abandoned that field and come over to the political field of the socialists, for the general strike was a political strike. Besides, organized labor had been so badly beaten that it did not care. It joined in the general strike out of sheer desperation. The workers threw down their tools and left their tasks by the millions. Especially notable were the machinists. Their heads were bloody. Their organization had apparently been destroyed. Yet out they came along with their allies in the metalworking trades. Even the common laborers and all unorganized labor ceased to work, and the strike had tied everything up so nobody could work. Besides, the women proved to be strongest promoters of the strike. They set their faces against the war. They did not want their men to go forth to die. Then, also, the idea of the general strike caught the mood of the people. It struck their sense of... Humor the idea was infectious. The children stuck uh, struck in all the schools and such teachers as came went home again from deserted classrooms. The general strike took the form of the great national picnic and, and the idea of solidarity of labor so evidenced uh, appealed to the imagination of all and finally, there was no danger to be incurred by the colossal frolic. When everyone was guilty, I was anyone to be punished, and the United States was paralyzed. No one knew what was happening. There were no newspapers, no letters, no dispatches. Every community was completely isolated, as though 10,000 miles of primal wilderness stretched between it and the rest of the world. For that matter, the world had ceased to exist. And for a week, this state of affairs was maintained. In San Francisco, we did not know what was happening, even across the bay in Oakland or in Berkeley. The effect on one's sensibilities was weird, depressing. It seemed as though some great cosmic thing lay dead, the pulse of the land had ceased to beat, of a uh, uh, truth, the nation had died. There were no wagons rumbling on the streets, no factory whistles, no hum of electricity in the air, no passing of streetcars, no cries of the newsboys. Nothing but persons who are at rare intervals went by like furtive ghosts, themselves oppressed and made unreal by the silence. And during that week of silence, the oligarchy was taught its lesson. And well, it learned the lesson. The general strike was a warning. It should never occur again. The oligarchy would see to that. At the end of the week, as had been prearranged, the telegraphers of Germany and the United States returned to their posts. Through them, the socialist leaders of both countries presented the ultimatums to the rulers the war should be called off, or the general strike would continue. It did not take long to come to an understanding. The war was declared off and the populations of both countries returned to their tasks. It was this renewal of peace that brought about the alliance between Germany and the United States. In reality, this was an alliance between the emperor and the oligarchy for the purpose of meeting their common foe, the revolutionary proletariat of both countries. And it was this alliance that the oligarchy afterwards so treacherously broke when the German Socialists rose and drove the warlord from his throne. It was the very thing the oligarchy had played for the destruction of its great rival in the world market. With the German Emperor out of the way, Germany would have no surplus to sell abroad. By the very nature of the socialist state, the German population would consume all it had produced. Of course, it would trade abroad certain things it produced for things it did not produce, but this would be quite different from the unconsumable surplus. I'll wager the oligarchy finds justification, Ernest said, when its treachery to the German emperor became known. As usual, the oligarchy will believe it has done right. And sure enough, the oligarchy's public defense for this act was that it had done it for the sake of the American people, whose interests it was looking out for. It had flung its hatred, hated rival out of the world market and enabled us to depose of our surplus in that market. And the howling folly of it is that we are so helpless... That such idiots really are managing our interests, was Ernest's comment. They have enabled us to sell more abroad, which means that we'll be compelled to consume less at home. So, what did we learn? We learned that even when you get to the 13th chapter where the book seems to be picking up, you uh, you still can have a really annoying chapter. But at least towards the end, uh, it was part of the story of what's going on. We learned that the socialists had their uprising and, and that sort of thing. It started out all oligarchy-heavy and talking about trade, uh, but at least it got to the point, and the point being that the, the uprising happened. The socialist Germans said, "'We got your back, socialist Americans.'" Uh, we won't let this war happen. And, in the end, the American oligarchy won. The German warlord. That's a term you only ever hear in horrible situations in other countries, like with their civil war and things, and there's always warlords that step in to manage. Uh... Here, apparently... I gotta—I I have to look up the definition of warlord later because, uh, yeah, apparently you could be a warlord and rule a whole nation, I guess. I don't know. So there you have it. That was Chapter 13 of uh, The Iron, Iron Heel. And you got to learn about a hot new book that's out about cooking with seaweed from a, from an old salt who's got a lot of stories and yarns to tell. So I hope you enjoyed it. Then I hope that you will return again. Uh, I'm sure I've got another chapter I'm going to uh, spit out before book boys <laughs> reading the Golden Compass. <laughs> As always, I have been Glenn Nuzzles.